0: The biggest takeaways from Biden's first address to a joint session.
1: As we open the economy safely, that we also are addressing and making critical investments in our country.
0: I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. (music) Will Biden's legislative agenda get bipartisan support?
2: On the infrastructure bill. The Democrats have have a, a pretty big bill there. The, Demo- the Republicans came back with one substantially smaller. And maybe they can meet somewhere in the middle and get something done. And details on a
0: newly discovered toxic dump site off the coast, plus the pros and cons of crossing the border for medical procedures. That's ahead on Midday Edition. In his first major address to Congress, President Biden outlined a bold economic agenda while assuring the nation that America is on its way out of the coronavirus pandemic.
2: After 100 days
0: of
4: rescue and renewal, America is ready for a takeoff, in my view. We're working again, dreaming again, discovering again, and leading the world again.
0: And while fellow Democrats in particular praise the president's calls to action in addressing climate change and economic inequality, many in the party are urging Biden to pursue more ambitious progressive policy while in office. Joining me to discuss the Democratic reaction to the president's address is chair of the San Diego County Democratic Party, Will Rodriguez-Kennedy. Will, welcome. Thank you for having me. What was your initial reaction to the president's speech?
1: I think it is quite the change from the last time we had a president uh, address a joint uh, session of Congress. It was historic in many ways. I just from the beginning, noting that we had two Californians and two women occupying the two top seats uh, as the speaker and the, the vice president. But generally, it's a, it was a hopeful vision for the country, although, you know, we as a party are going to want to push for more.
0: A lot of ground was covered in yesterday's address. What do you think were the most critical issues that the president brought up?
1: The president is looking to build back better, which means he wants to make sure that as we get through the, uh, the, the recovery and that as we open the economy safely, that we also are addressing and making critical investments in our country from looking at, at, at sort of economic investments uh, to the family, to make sure that we can make broad investments into infrastructure and also addressing several reforms that have uh, not been addressed, things like immigration and, and police reform.
0: During his campaign for the presidency, Biden often referred to his moderate political alignment as an advantage in pursuing bipartisan legislative efforts. Did you hear any messaging in this speech that would signal an effort to work with Republicans across the aisle on some of that that you mentioned?
1: Yes, uh, the president made reference to productive conversations that are happening in the U.S. Senate with the Republican caucus. Democrats have cause to be skeptical. Uh, Republicans have been obstructionist in the past and have failed uh, when they had a majority in the Senate to address the economic and even health woes of this country. Um, but it does look like the administration is working in good faith to try and get the, bring some of the Republicans uh, along, uh, whether or not they will be good faith partners as these senators are now starting to, to position themselves for their own political presidential runs. You know, you have to treat it with some skepticism.
0: And yesterday, the president urged Congress to pass a police reform bill by the end of May, which would uh, mark one year since George Floyd died at the hands of police. Do you think the president is setting the right tone in addressing issues of racial injustice in America?
1: I would say that it is a great thing for him to set a deadline and to want to honor the tragic anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. I am skeptical that Republicans will take this issue and work in good faith. I think that a lot of the things that we will run up against uh, in terms of big policies like these, like criminal justice reform, which is a very complex issue that needs to be addressed, will run into the, the fact that the Senate is 50-50. And so I think it'll be difficult for the president to achieve anything uh, without ending the filibuster, which is one of the proposals of our California Senator Alex Padilla.
0: Last night, Biden really leaned into tackling white supremacy and systemic racism. And during the Republican rebuttal, however, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina was very critical of that.
4: People are making money and
5: gaining power by pretending we haven't made any progress at all. By doubling down on the divisions, we've worked so hard to heal. You know this stuff is wrong. Hear me clearly. America is not
1: a racist country.
0: A lot to unpack there. What are your thoughts on that claim by Senator Scott?
1: I am hesitant to engage in um, criticisms of 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 black leaders who are who are making uh who are speaking their truths from their perspective what i will say is that it is a pretty objective fact that there is provable systemic racism in the united states and that we have to as a country address that systemic racism and we saw that in things as evident as the covid-19 pandemic where communities of color, particularly the Black and Latino communities, suffered and died at greater rates than their white fellow Americans. We know that the criminal justice system has a disproportionate impact and disproportionate treatments of Black and and Latino Americans and API Americans. So it's a pretty objective fact that there is systemic racism in the United States. And I would agree with the president that we need to address it and address it soon. You
0: know, the president also laid out an American jobs plan, the American family plan. The $1.8 trillion price tag that comes with it is something Republicans say raises concern for them. Um, What's your argument as to why this money should be spent this way?
1: I think it's very interesting that the Republicans routinely talk about things like spending when they are out of office, but they added enormous amount of the national debt. The reality is, is that we as a country can spend beyond our means for a short while and that that spending can stimulate the economy and then in the end allows us to address the debt in a, in a reasonable timeframe. The United States is a very strong con- uh, economy, the strongest economy in the world. And therefore, we can afford to make investments that pay off in the future. And the Republican Party, which is the party of business and the party of economics and financial cons- conservatism or whatever, they should understand the concept of investments. And if they don't understand that, then they're being intellectually dishonest.
0: So what's the strategy to get this agenda from legislation to law for the Biden administration? What do you think will be key to get this through the Senate?
1: Well, a lot of these issues are very popular. If you look on an an issue by issue, uh, whether it's investing in infrastructure, whether it's investing in the family, these are going to be talking points that are very popular, particularly in red and purple uh, Senate districts. So I think the initial approach is that the the Biden administration is going to try and pull off some of the moderate Republican senators to support a broad uh, agenda that will be popular with the American people. If that is not the case, however, I would not put it past uh, moving to filibuster reform, which will allow the Democrats to pass uh, legislation into law with a 50 50, uh, plus one majority, which allows our uh, vice president and California native uh, Kamala Harris to cast a series of tie-breaking votes. So I think those are the two approaches that the administration will take towards legislation.
0: I've been speaking with Will Rodriguez-Kennedy, chair of the San Diego County Democratic Party. Will, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
6: After President Biden outlined expansive plans on jobs, infrastructure, and the American family in his speech to Congress last night, Republican Senator Tim Scott provided the GOP response.
5: President Biden promised you a specific kind of leadership. He promised to unite a nation to lower the temperature, to govern for all Americans, no matter how we voted. This was the pitch. You just heard it again. But our nation is starving for more than empty platitudes. We need policies and progress that brings us closer together. But three months in, the actions of the president and his party are pulling us further and further apart.
6: Other Republicans attacked the broad strokes of Biden's agenda as too expensive and too socialist. But the president did offer critics an olive branch when he said last night he was outlining his policies as a first step toward engaging in honest negotiations with those who disagree and may be able to bring better ideas to the table. So the question is, will Republicans engage in good faith to make policy with the Biden administration? And do they have any better ideas? Joining me to discuss that is Republican strategist Bob Schumann. Bob, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
6: Now, as a longtime political observer, what did you think of the president's speech last night?
2: You know, in in my profession, you look at things sometimes a little bit differently than than someone else. And so you you look at the presentation itself and you look at the optics of it and then you look at the substance of it. And I, I think all three were kind of bad. You know, we've seen President Biden in the past, not the recent past, but in the past, be pretty fiery and pretty motivational and pretty inspirational and last night, he was just kind of monotone and kind of flat for the most part. And, and part of that may have to do with not being much of a crowd there. Well, the ethnic part that looked great was the vice president and and the speaker of the House, both women for the first time sitting back there. That was pretty cool. But when they panned the gallery and and there you had everybody socially distanced, wearing masks uh, after, you know, a pretty large Drive to give people confidence in the vaccine, and I think that sent kind of a mixed message uh, because they were all vaccinated, yet they were still wearing masks and socially distancing. So, it, not sure that was the the best option. But I don't know what their other options might have been either. Finally, the substance of it, I think you hit it when you said expansive. It is really big, and it's you know it's higher taxes, it's much more spending, uh, more government in our lives, uh, kind of across the board.
6: What did you hear in Biden's speech that you think Republicans might be able to work on with Democrats?
2: Let me take a step back. Both parties kind of do the same thing. When they win, even by the narrowest of margins, they think they have a mandate and they tend to overreach. And typically, then what happens is the party not in power puts up a bill that is substantially smaller than the one that was put up, and they they sit together and they kind of work it out. And they figure out where they have common ground and that's kind of where they end up going. But that hasn't been the pattern under at least the last two presidents. Hopefully they can do that. They can get together. I know that on the infrastructure bill, the Democrats have have a a pretty big bill there. The The Republicans came back with one substantially smaller and maybe they can meet somewhere in the middle and get something done.
6: And you think that's what it's going to take to get both sides working together again to pass laws that help the American people?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's their jobs, and I think both sides want to do it. I I think that what's what's changed in, in recent history is that both parties used to want this same goal. They wanted the same thing. Everybody wanted, you know, full employment without inflation. They wanted everybody to get the best education possible. They just disagreed on how you get there. But now we don't even necessarily agree on what we want America to look like. And I think that's really the crux of the problem uh, that we're going through right now. And I I think it's something we'll work through and something we'll get through. But that's the biggest problem right now is a whole different vision of what we are.
6: Okay. so even though Americans remain deeply divided politically, it seems that President Biden's polling remains above 50 percent approval. And it seems Americans are becoming more disenchanted with the Trump legacy as his approval rating is going down. Is this a political problem for the Trump loyalists in the GOP?
2: That's a little hard to tell and it's a little early to tell. But with Biden's numbers, the real clear politics summary uh, is at 43%. And that's the second lowest number 100 days in since 1945. So he's not wildly popular, but I do think it's reflective of where we are as a country. And I'm not surprised that Trump's numbers are slipping. He's not been in the public eye very much. And others are stepping forward uh, as potential presidential candidates. And I think as that happens uh, and people start to think a little bit about who they may want their leader to be next time around, uh, it's only natural that he would slip.
6: You know, speaking of polling, here in California, Gavin Newsom's poll numbers are steady or actually improving. It looks like winning a recall will be an uphill battle. How much time and money do you think is the GOP willing to put into this recall effort?
2: You know, I, I don't really know. I think they'll put in the time, but I, I think you hit the kind of the weak point, which may be the money. Uh, even, even if Gavin Newsom is recalled, there's a very good chance that a different Democrat will win to replace him the way that it's set up. And typically in recalls, the, the motivation is much more with those who want to remove the governor as opposed to those who want to keep him. But the Republicans have a real uphill battle trying to take it. We don't have a superstar. I think we have some solid candidates, but, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see what happens.
6: All right. I think you're right about that. I've been yeah. speaking with Republican strategist Bob Schuman. Bob, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Appreciate it.
6: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. A decades-long suspicion that barrels of DDT had been dumped off the coast of Catalina Island is now closer to being proven. DDT has been banned as a pesticide for agricultural use in the U.S. for nearly 50 years, but environmentalists say the dumping may have gone on for years before the ban. Scientists from Scripps have captured images that resemble more than 25,000 barrels of suspected DDT waste on acres of seafloor between Catalina and Los Angeles. High amounts of DDT contamination have been found in the region's ocean sediments, And marine mammals for years, but this is the first time that the exact location and extent of the dumping has been discovered. Joining me is Eric Terrell. He's Chief Scientist of the Expedition and Director of the Marine Physical Laboratory at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Eric, welcome to the program.
7: Hi, thank you for having me.
6: How did you conduct this search on the seafloor?
7: So we used robotic tools which really wouldn't have been even available say, 10 years ago to try to conduct this type of survey where um, these autonomous underwater vehicles were able to be launched and recovered from our research vessel Sally Ride. Um, the Sally Ride actually provided um, very high, precise navigation signals down to these robots as they were conducting the surveys using a sonar technique called side-scan sonar. And side-scan sonar is a type of imaging sonar that's really advanced through the years and in this case we were looking uh, to the right and the left of each vehicle out to 150 meters down to you know tens of centimeters of object detection scales so we we had uh you know objects as small as a coffee cup we could actually see on the seabed with tools like this and I'm not saying we saw coffee cups out there I'm just trying to give you a, a perspective of the uh, size of objects that we could actually detect with this type of sonar.
6: What kind of images did
7: you see? first activity we did was really to get on station where um there were some known barrels and began mapping it with the sonar and you know the the sheer numbers that we began seeing in the data um, you know indicating that there was barrels located there and have the shape and dimension and the acoustic brightness associated with the barrels you know really was th- first told us hey we need to make sure our sonar is working properly so we had to uh do some various calibration, and you know, convinced ourselves, hey, the sonar is working right. There's just this many barrels on the seabed. In the course of the two weeks, a story began to unravel of the full spatial extent of of the debris field uh, that you know went on for you know the dumping from the historical records, which went over for decades. You know, seemed to be cons- confirmed by the data that we saw.
6: And how wide an area are we talking about? So.
7: One of the unique features of of the dump site, why we know it's debris field uh, dumping, not only just by the acoustic targets, is they they have very, they're distributed on the seabed in in linear fashion, you know, consistent with a ship underway dropping things um, as it's sailing along. And some of those uh, kind of fields that are, are long linear features, you know, extended up to 11 miles in length.
6: Now, the barrels you, you discovered seem likely to have contained DDT, but you're still not sure. Is that right?
7: Well, I think first and foremost for the public, it's very important to realize that this dump site was used for a lot of industrial purposes. So we don't know what's inside these barrels, because I have one example of a historical document from 1949 where, you know, barrels from the Montes Chemical Corporation, which was the producer of DDT in the uh, LA Basin, had dumped twenty thousand barrels during that year, or the salvage company dumped twenty thousand barrels. For them. But the petrochemical industry in the same area, also the same salvage company, dumped you know in excess of one hundred and forty thousand barrels. So, so it's yeah. You know, as a scientist, we got to be you know, very careful how we project our data and what the nuances are of it. And, you know, kind of my message to the, to the public is, there's a lot of barrels on the seabed. More than likely, there's some fraction of those have DDT or were associated with a DDT manufacturing, but there's a lot of other industrial uses, and we just don't know what's contained within all those barrels.
6: Do you know if this site could possibly be cleaned up?
7: You know, that that, that would be a, a stretch for me to extrapolate at this point. I You know, what what we're hopeful for is this knowing where to look on the seafloor because we, you know, over 14 days, we're able to kind of unravel the full extent of the debris field. And what we need to do next is start conducting scientific studies. You know, I think there's a whole of government and a whole of science community response here. It's really required to go after understanding the full extent of the impacts and condition of, of the waste field and how that might be impacting the environment.
6: And what's it like for a marine scientist to see the ocean used this way as a dumping ground?
7: You know, as a uh, as an oceanographer and a scientist, you know, we're we're charged with having very objective looks at and interpreting the data and presenting it, you know, accurately to the environment. Now, as a ocean enthusiast and inhabitant of the planet, you know, it, it did become a little depressing or humbling while we were out there. Um, you know, I would say the the entire scientific team, as we began unraveling kind of the full field, you know, it's it, you know, I don't think at the time people probably thought they were doing the right thing in terms of where they were dumping. And fast forward, you know, what we now know, um, you know, maybe maybe changes that that outlook on you know that sort of management uh, approach that was taken back then. And
8: it, it is certainly
7: humbling to see you know, what what man can do to the environment. And you know, the, the positive step is I think, you know, we've got capabilities and science that can be applied to these problems and hopefully, you know, write some of the potential wrongs that happened in the past.
6: I've been speaking with Eric Terrell. He was chief scientist of the expedition and director of the Marine Physical Laboratory at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Eric, thank you very much.
7: Oh, you're very welcome.
0: As California opens hundreds of investigations into fraudulent unemployment claims that could cost the state billions of dollars, lawmakers are eager to fix the holes that made it easy to game California's systems. As we hear from the California Report's Mary Franklin Harvin, a bill making its way through the legislature is facing tough criticism from advocates who say its language is too broad and could end up penalizing already vulnerable people.
8: Around Thanksgiving last year, DAs from across the state came together to announce that over 30,000 fake unemployment claims had been filed in the names of people incarcerated in California. Both DAs and the state auditor have said that part of the reason it was so easy to dupe California's unemployment system is that, unlike at least 35 other states, we don't cross-match unemployment applications against our prison rolls. And that's what Bakersfield Senator Shannon Grove is hoping to change with SB 39. So SB 39 requires CDCR and EDD, the Employment Development Department, to cross-reference or cross-match Social security numbers for those that are incarcerated in the CDCR facilities. Katie Dixon is a community organizer with Legal Aid at Work and was formerly incarcerated. She's concerned about recent data that show holes in the state's arrest record keeping.
0: We just don't believe that CDCR is capable of disseminating accurate information to anyone, let alone someone outside of, you know, their already complicated
8: landscape. In 2019, for example, the California Department of Justice estimated that up to 60% of its arrest records were incomplete, meaning EDD could be flagging people based on inaccurate information. Grove says she doesn't want to keep benefits from people who need them, but the state is already facing a fraud bill in the tens of billions. That number is going to be paid back by small businesses that have been shut down over the last year and haven't been able to have revenue. While up to $2 billion out of the potentially $30 billion in total fraud could be linked to incarcerated people, it's unclear how many were active participants in the scams versus those whose identities were used by scammers.
0: Folks feel like we're low-hanging fruit. It's easy to go after, you know, folks that has already been identified as, what, a criminal
6: or something like that.
8: SB 39 made it through the Labor Committee earlier this week and is now heading to appropriations. I'm Mary Franklin Hartman.
6: It's been more than two years since the Children's Zoo closed for a major renovation at the San Diego Zoo. KPBS Environment reporter Eric Anderson says new Hummingbird and Komodo Dragon exhibits highlight new high-tech and sustainable technologies.
4: This corner of the zoo is a bundle of activity. Construction crews are working to get the old Children's Zoo area ready for visitors. The southeast corner of the zoo has been closed since February 2019. The Children's Zoo isn't the only renovation project underway here. Crews are putting finishing touches on a new sustainable hummingbird habitat. Curator of birds David Rimlinger says San Diego is among only a handful of zoos that keep hummingbird collections. I think
2: hummingbirds are one of those few birds, like a penguin, where even if you've never seen one, you know that it's a hummingbird.
4: Hummingbirds thrive in San Diego, but don't exist in many parts of the world. The new habitat offers a chance for people to see the birds up close. And green walls like this will not only enhance the experience for people walking through the exhibit, but it's also better for the hummingbirds that'll live here. Remlinger says keeping the birds on display requires a significant effort.
2: They're not an easy species to keep. They um, eat more often than any other type of bird. They feed mainly on nectar that has to be replenished twice a day, and fruit flies. So we raise fruit flies for them to eat, especially when they're raising babies.
4: And the new habitat will help. Some of the walls resemble pillows. The rugged plastic is translucent. And it traps air in the wall.
6: The ETFE pillows, we call them, are double layer with air in between. And so that also helps us regulate the the thermal control in the environments.
4: Vanessa Nevers is one of the project's architects. She says the enclosures were designed to take advantage of San Diego's unique environment to help regulate the habitat. She says it's part of the sustainability underpinning of all major projects at the zoo.
6: Sustainable design is becoming more prevalent and much more common practice um, in a lot of
4: areas. Construction manager Amon Farrell says the sustainability discussion was underway long before the first shovel cut into the earth, and the process took everything into account.
2: What we've done uh, now versus years ago is we box trees, we safely put them at a location so we can bring them back in. With the demolition, instead of loading it all up and taking it all off, we separate it into concrete, glass, steel, you know, we take the time to do that. That's all recyclable, Um, and we send it to a source close by.
4: Farrell says the designers, builders, and keepers all got together early on in the discussion to see what new habitats would need to serve the animals housed there. For the Komodo dragons heat is important. Herpetology and ichthyology curator Kim Gray says heat rocks, infrared lights and even the natural environment will help keep the lizards toasty.
6: You can tell it's a little bit overcast today, a little bit cooler temperatures. In Indonesia it might not be this cool so we might allow them to just spend more time indoors in a nice warm environment.
4: Gray says the new exhibit will have a separate indoor area and outdoor space and a nesting area in the back. And Gray says that'll give the Komodo dragons a choice.
6: These habitats give them that opportunity to be together or not, depending on the animals and the time of year and if they're breeding or not.
4: The new habitats require integrated systems that Farrell says could be controlled by a smartphone. That'll make it easier for keepers to manage the two new exhibit spaces. But that ease of operation masks the challenge of making the habitats work. It's not
2: four walls, a roof. It's not we've done this before. Let's just repeat that construction process. No, we're dealing with live animals, and they all have different needs, and the collection is very dear to
4: us. The Hummingbird and Komodo exhibits are scheduled to be open to the public this summer. Eric Anderson, KPBS News.
9: Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today.
0: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. People have long traveled across the border to save thousands of dollars on medical procedures, including cosmetic surgery, which is an industry that's seeing a boom. But one California woman, Kiana Weaver, died on the operating table after crossing into Tijuana for a cosmetic procedure. She's not the only one. Two others had been rushed to the hospital with life-threatening complications and are still recovering. They all went to one clinic where Dr. Jesus Manuel Bais Lopez performed cosmetic surgery in January of this year. As Wendy Fry, a reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune's watchdog and accountability team reports, Lopez is not actually a plastic surgeon, and there's little oversight in Mexico to stop him. Wendy, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So you start your recent report talking about how medical tourism is seeing an uptick across the border in Tijuana. What's driving this recent interest?
5: Right. And that boom is not just in cosmetic surgery, although there has been an increase in that uh, what's called the Zoom boom, which comes from people basically wanting plastic surgery because they've been spending more and more time staring at their faces on Zoom. Also, a lot of, I think maybe a lot of women might have more downtime that not having to go into the office and explain sort of the aftermath of the surgery also might be driving it a little bit. But there's also the fact that overall, in general, Mexico has been striving for many years to become this world class leader in medical tourism. And Tijuana is kind of at the center of
0: that. So, how much cheaper are these cosmetic procedures in Tijuana? Women
5: are, have been able to save, depending on exactly what they're having done, thousands to tens of thousands of dollars. So a surgery that would cost maybe $30,000 in the United States is maybe six or $7,000 there.
1: But
0: for three women who went to get cosmetic surgery at one clinic in Tijuana, none of them left unharmed. What happened?
5: That's the key question right there is what happened, you know, on this one day at the same clinic that all three women went to. And basically all three women, according to what they've told us, had varying degrees of what seems to be the same cause. The way that doctors were able to explain it to me is that basically when the surgery was over and they went to close them back up, they did it too tightly in a way that squished all their organs together. And so their organs were no longer able to continue functioning. So like the digestive organs, those functions weren't able to continue happening, which is obviously very serious and for Kiana fatal.
0: And for the family of Kiana Weaver, who you briefly mentioned, um, she actually died on the operating table. And it's been difficult to find out what went wrong with her surgery specifically. Can you talk about that?
5: Sure. So the problem is right now, there does not exist a death certificate at all, or any kind of record whatsoever of Keanu Weaver's death within Baja California's tracking system, within their medical examiner's data, basically. So there was no autopsy. uh, And there's just no records whatsoever, other than this one form that Kiana's mother had to fill out to transfer her body back from Baja, California to California, which does list a cause of death on it. And what it lists on that document is cardiorespiratory arrest. So basically, her heart stopped,
0: she stopped breathing. So is there any investigation into the medical malpractice for her death?
5: No, not as far as we know. There's no investigation going on. We followed up again with the Fiscalia, with the Attorney General after the article ran to see if there had been any movement and no, we have not heard of any agency investigating. In fact, Dr. Baez was still operating. Actually, his receptionist told me he was in the middle of a surgery when I went in person to seek comment from him.
0: And Kanisha Davis uh, and a friend also went to see Dr. Jesus Manuel Baez Lopez for a tummy tuck and liposuction. Davis, who is a nurse, said she saw red flags and ended up in the hospital. What happened there? Right. So she said she wasn't hooked up to any monitors during the surgery.
5: And just as a nurse, she felt something wasn't going on correctly in her body. And she knew she would not have released a patient that was in her condition. She was dizzy. She couldn't walk. When she arrived in the ER, she actually she waited for a long time at the in the ER because she wasn't able to really articulate what was wrong. She just felt like things were off. But once they ran a CAT scan, things started moving very, very quickly because they told her she had a hematoma and was very close to death. If she hadn't come in when she did and if she hadn't gotten medical care when she did.
0: And there was a a somewhat similar experience for Esmeralda Ingez. Uh, Where did her procedure go wrong? Basically, it's the exact same story, except she has not yet been able
5: to regain any function of her kidneys.
0: Oh, wow. So how has that impacted her life? So she's still on dialysis,
5: and she was starting to recover. And then in April, her wound got reinfected, and she's been in and out of the hospital.
0: Tell me more about Dr. Baez Lopez. I mean, what kind of credentials does he have? He is a doctor. He is a general physician, but he only has a two-year
5: master's degree in aesthetic surgery, which we're told by d- other doctors and other surgeons that that's not really surgery. They they market it as surgery, but it's not actually surgery. It's like getting Botox or aesthetics, And he does not have listed among his credentials any training or education as a plastic surgeon, which I understand is a six-year process. So you have to be in school, do training, do testing for six years before you become a surgeon.
0: So how is he able to operate then as a cosmetic surgeon in Mexico? My understanding is that there's just a lack of oversight that allows
5: people to do these procedures. And if they go well, then no one asks any questions, and they're able to continue operating their business that way.
0: Have any of his patients been able to hold him liable for these botched surgeries? Not
5: that I'm aware of. There hasn't been any civil
0: litigation. So what would you suggest someone do if they are considering going across the border for cosmetic surgery?
5: Right. So I mean, even with the savings, you know, whether it's $20,000, or whether it's $7,000 is still a significant amount of money, right to invest. So you'd want to do All the research, at least that you would do when you're buying a car or making a huge purchase, right? You want to compare different doctors, talk to people who have had surgeries with them, but then also you definitely want to look on this site. That's the Mexican Association of Plastic Surgeons and Reconstructive Surgery. The link is in the story that I did put in Baja, California, and that lists all of the surgeons who are part of this association and they cannot be a part of the association if they do not have the actual training as a surgeon.
0: I've been speaking with Wendy Fry, a reporter for the San Diego Union Tribune's Watchdog and Accountability Team. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jade. While the story we just heard is a tragic example of medical tourism gone wrong, crossing the border into Tijuana for medical procedures and medications is not new to many San Diegans. KPBS's border podcast, Port of Entry, is kicking off a new series, Zooming In on Medical Tourism at the Border. Each episode in the series will tell the personal stories of medical tourists crossing for things like weight loss surgery, fertility treatments, insulin, and more. Here's Port of Entry host Alan Lilienthal with a peek at episode one, which follows a San Diego woman, Maria Davis Cherry, as she crosses to Tijuana for alternative cancer treatments.
9: In Tijuana, medical tourism is blowing up. Mexico
2: is striving to become a worldwide leader in medical tourism.
1: About
3: one million people,
8: mainly Americans, travel to Mexico every year for all kinds of medical treatment. You have dentists, pharmacies, and other medical services that cater specifically to Americans.
6: Tijuana is actually
5: something you can afford. It's, it was like $4,000 to get it done, and here, I don't even know, it's
10: probably like twelve dollars to
9: $15,000. The entire Tijuana landscape immediately surrounding the border has just completely transformed. Family place, tequila, margarita. Flashy, blinking digital billboards advertising dentists, cosmetic surgeons, and cancer clinics are everywhere. Beautiful. All of right here
7: to my
9: but towering over them is a huge new medical center and hospital that just opened its doors. There's a lot of talk about how this new medical center is gonna be the most technologically advanced hospital in all of Latin America. I actually went to the launch party for another newish center called New City Medical Plaza in 2019. It was crazy. There was wine, cheese, a huge stage with a wild light show and like a 13 person band ton of politicians and business people were there, it felt like a fancy wedding. (laughs) These shiny new medical buildings stand tall here at the border, poised for a future where the billions of dollars being spent by lots of people from the U.S. and beyond just keeps ballooning. And the pandemic, it's barely put a dent in the industry's growth. In fact, COVID-19 is actually driving a big boost in plastic surgery procedures in Tijuana, thanks in part to people staring at themselves in Zoom meetings all day.
5: And it's causing people to see themselves on screen and not the most flattering light. Many are now getting Botox fillers and facelifts, keeping some plastic surgeons very busy. It's called the Zoom boom.
9: So yeah, Tijuana is big time when it comes to medical tourism. Most people are crossing south to save money on medication and medical procedures. But some people, folks like Maria Davis Cherry. are you? They aren't crossing the border to save dollars on things like nose jobs and dental veneers.
10: For three weeks, I think it's about 23, 22, and, and some change. Is
9: that money coming from, your savings? Mm-hmm people like Maria are crossing the border hoping to save their own lives.
10: We are in Tijuana, Mexico, right across the border. And I just finished my last natural holistic cancer treatment at Immunity Therapy Center.
9: So when Maria gets a headache, she doesn't reach for Tylenol. I just
10: put like peppermint oil across my my temples or lavender oil and drink more water. I go for like the natural stuff before.
9: She's what some people might call crunchy.
10: Turmeric and mushrooms and alkaline water, you know, how to keep your alkalinity in your body. Um, I started looking at, now even more at elderberries, vitamin B17, which is apricot seeds, you know. So, just a lot of natural uh, oils, frankincense, essential oil.
9: Maria believes 100% in the power of holistic healing healthy, clean eating, exercise, natural remedies, those kinds of things. And she's kind of the perfect poster child for it. Maria was 49 back in 2019 when my producers and I first talked to her. But she looks way younger. She's one of those people who somehow always looks like she just stepped out of a spa or something. Like her skin just sort of glows, which is worth noting because at the time she was in the middle of a battle for her life.
10: I was in the doctor's office at the oncologist's office and I was sitting there with my husband again. So they just, they said, yeah, unfortunately it's breast cancer again. It came back, you know, they call it coming back. I don't think it ever left, but it came back. So, um, I mean, you, you feel disappointed and irritated and sad and a bunch of different emotions at the same time. But, you go, okay, let's do this again.
9: And look, I want to say this right up front. I am most definitely not a doctor. And this is not some kind of hardcore investigation into the efficacy of alternative cancer treatments. We're not recommending or warning anyone about anything here. Instead, this is a story about one woman's experience and her own personal convictions. Maria lives in Otay Mesa, a city really close to the US-Mexico border.
10: I just go out from my yard, and you can see all the little lights. It's an open field, and then right after the open field, you can see all the lights, and you can see Mexico from the, the Otai border, pretty much.
9: One of the first things you notice when you meet Maria is her sort of stoic look. It's like being cool, calm, and collected is her natural state. She's strong, and also a little emotionally guarded. At least with me and my producers, Emily Jankowski and Kinsey Moreland.
5: Man, how do you stay so tough? Did you like build
10: a mm. wall around
5: your
8: heart? I mean, how do you stay so strong? No, you yeah. know.
10: I mean, the only thing we can do now is to educate ourselves to to keep pushing forward. It's another day, you know? The Bible says, you know, if you pray, don't worry. But if you worry, then why pray? So. Just don't worry anymore. I think stress is gonna probably even cause bigger things. So I think the more you stress, the more you get things in your body and worrying about it is not gonna change that I got cancer twice, you know? Don't
0: you get mad
10: though? Oh yeah, of course. I'm just not mad right now.
9: <laughs> so for this, Maria's second battle with cancer, she's built herself what she feels is an impenetrable suit of armor, armor that's made up of her faith in God and her newfound faith in holistic healing.
0: And that was Port of Entry host Alan Lilienthal talking with Maria Cherry Davis. You can follow their cross-border journey by finding Port of Entry online at portofentry.org or on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts.